nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week. Updates on two, count them two, American nuclear accidents of 2014. Don Hancock of Southwest Information and Resource Center again brings us up to date on the latest at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant or WIP site in Carlsbad, New Mexico, the site of the Valentine's Day radiation release that has kept the plant shut down and will for a minimum of five years. Then Gail Snyder of Chicago-based Nuclear Energy Information Service gives us the latest information on the October 26 uranium hexafluoride release in Metropolis, Illinois. No, not Superman's hometown, but the home of Honeywell's uranium processing facility. Plus, we will have a late-breaking piece on the USS Reagan Operation Tomodachi lawsuit, and you'll get to hear our listener favorite, Numbnuts of the Week. As well as activist shoutouts, the John Stewart Twitter campaign to get nuclear punditry on the Daily Show, and enough nuclear information to stuff a turkey, which may be a euphemism as opposed to the name of a bird. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November twenty fifth, twenty fourteen, and here is the week's anti nuclear news. First, this breaking story. Word has come to us of a second death among the sailors who were exposed to the worst of Fukushima's radiation during Operation Tomodachi, the humanitarian aid mission conducted immediately after the March 11, 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan. I spoke just a few moments ago with Charles Bonner, one of the attorneys in the one billion dollar lawsuit against TEPCO, General Electric, Ibasco, Toshiba, and Hitachi. Designers, builders, and operators of Fukushima Daiichi. Charles spoke with us from his office in San Francisco. Charles, I just caught a notice on ENE News that a second sailor has died in the USS Reagan case. Can you fill us in and tell us what you know about this? One of our clients, a young man named Charlie Mengi, was ill and had contacted us, and、uh, we had sent him information. And we then found out just on the 17th of this month, when we were trying to confirm the spelling of his name, that he has passed away. He's a 26-year-old kid. He's been in the Navy for eight years. He joined the Navy right out of high school when he was 18, and he worked as an aircraft maintenance person. Observed the helicopters landing back on the USS Essex with high counts of radiation. It was quite a bit of attention. Given to those helicopters, their parts had to be changed, engines had to be changed because of the high counts of radiation. The commanders passed out 
iodine pills to them all because there was an acknowledgement that they were sailing in radiation and they were in a plume. And this kid became very ill and passed away of leukemia. Charles, for clarification, did he serve on the Reagan during Operation Tomodachi? And was he a named plaintiff in the case? Yes, he is a named plaintiff and he was on the USS Essex, not the Reagan. Of course, there were nine or so ships responding as a part of the Seventh Fleet. The Reagan was the lead ship, but there were other ships, including the USS Essex. And Charlie Mangy was a member of the aircraft crew on the USS Essex. And he was there in Operation Tamadachi. They did encounter all of the radiation, and he became sick. He had contacted us, and he was one of the now 240 plaintiffs, and he just died in September at age 26, leaving two kids and a wife. No one in his family had ever had leukemia before. And the only cause of leukemia that anyone can come up with in the medical providers is his excessive exposure to radiation. Was he the first or was he the only sailor from the Essex who was part of the case? No, no. Of course, we have other plaintiffs from the Essex. The majority of the players are from the Reagan, but we have them from various other ships as well. That was Attorney Charles Bonner, who, along with Paul Gardner, are representing the sailors of Operation Tomodachi, primarily sailors from the USS Ronald Reagan, in their $1 billion lawsuit against TEPCO, Ibasco, Toshiba, Hitachi, and General Electric. For the record, Theodore H. Holcomb, an aviation mechanic structural petty officer second class who was assisting in Operation Tomodachi, was the first sailor involved with the Operation Tomodachi lawsuit to die. This happened on April 24th of 2014, and he passed away from synovial sarcoma, a rare form of inoperable cancer. For full information on the current status of the lawsuit and a copy of the third amended complaint, which has a list of now 239 named plaintiffs, go to fukushimaradiationvictims.net. Now, here's the rest of today's news. A special alert has been issued for the Boone Lake Dam, which is upstream of U.S. nuclear power plants, including Watts Bar in Tennessee. Muddy seepage has been coming up near the foundation, and the cause of a sinkhole and mysterious discharges are unknown after weeks of analysis around the clock, including the use of submarines and ground-penetrating radar. Goldman Sachs will wind down its small uranium trading business because nobody wanted to buy it. This according to a Senate report released on Wednesday, November 19th. What does this tell you about the future of nuclear aid? Coming up early, but here it is. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, numbnuts of the week. Evil numbnuts this week, as the U.S. House of Representatives has passed legislation to authorize the Department of Energy to do research on whether low-dose ionizing radiation poses a risk. I thought we had this settled with Beer 7 years ago. Paul Brune, U.S. Representative for Georgia's 10th Congressional District and the bill sponsor, said, Sufficient data is not available for experts to definitively conclude whether 
there are risks from this low-dose radiation. As a medical doctor and a true fiscal conservative, I recognize that this major gap in understanding is detrimental to the health of Americans and will contribute to the unnecessary economic burdens if we do not deal with it immediately. Warning, Will Robinson, this is a wind-up for a pitch against our true awareness of radiation's dangers. Now dig the time frame. The director of the Office of Science would be required to establish an agreement with the National Academies on a long-term strategy for low-dose radiation research within 60 days of the bill's enactment, and such a study would have to be completed within 18 months. When was the last time you heard this government act that fast on anything unless it was a pay raise for Congress? I'll have more on this on today's final thought, but for now... I'll have more on this on today's final thought, but for now, Representative Paul Brune and House of Representatives, you are this week's None That's Out of Week. A 6.8 earthquake hit central Japan on Saturday, November 22nd, and was felt as far away as Tokyo and Intahoku, which is the site of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactor. TEPCO officials have admitted failure at the Fukushima plant. Do you think that's news? This, again, is about their failure to halt the flow of radioactive water into underground tunnels alongside the ocean. Government experts argued that TEPCO should stick to the original plan and draw out all of the water. Others said giving up on it may hamper the construction of the ice wall. What ice wall? What they're not doing is listening to Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, who said that TEPCO should have built a zeolite trench around Fukushima to absorb the radiation and stop the flow of water. Too late, it won't work now. In France, giant French nuclear reactor manufacturer Arriva is believed to be on the edge of bankruptcy. The publicly traded shares in Arriva dropped 15%, and the company warned that its outlook is uncertain and suspended its financial projections for both 2015 and 2016. Does that mean they have no financial projections? Yeehaw! The Prime Ministers of India and Australia have entered into an unholy alliance which will enable Australian uranium to be exported to India. Ace nuclear activist Kumar Sundaram in India will certainly have a response to that. And in Scotland, the Ray nuclear power facility is being dismantled by a robot nicknamed Rectorsaurus. Do you think that means that they're recognizing that nuclear reactors are old technology? We'll have our interviews in just a moment. But first, let me tell you about an ebook that I think is a terrific read. Then again, I'm prejudiced because I wrote it. It's called Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. And it tells the story of what it means to find oneself, meaning me, One mile from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island as it is occurring. Thrills, spills, lies, manipulation, and close to three decades of post-traumatic stress like unto which you wouldn't believe. If you think I'm snarky on nuclear hot seat, wait till you read what I'm like when I'm in print. The Kindle ebook is available on Amazon.com, and I think you will enjoy the read. This week, during the interview section, we're going to catch up with the latest on two nuclear accidents that happened in the United States in 2014. 
The first is another in our series of follow-ups to the February 14 accident and radiation leak at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP site, in Carlsbad, New Mexico. To recap, WIP is the only permitted repository in the country for low-level nuclear waste from weapons manufacturing. It's a salt mine with deep underground storage and was predicted to be effective and safe for at least a thousand years. But on Valentine's Day of this year, only 15 years after it opened, there was what is being termed a propulsive leak. Some would call it an explosion. And it happened in a 55-gallon drum of radioactive waste from Los Alamos National, meaning nuclear, laboratory. It released plutonium and americium into the environment and so contaminated the site that it's now been shut down since February 14th, and it's estimated that the facility will require at least five years and $500 million to repair, if such a thing is even possible. Nuclear Hot Seat again spoke with Don Hancock, the executive director of Southwest Information and Resource Center, and our go-to genuine expert on WIP and the problems it and we face. On October 21st and 22nd, the fans at WIP were put back into service, at least for a test. And according to information in the Carlsbad Current Argus, a new small but measurable amount of radiation, their wording, was released, something that you predicted on our October 21st nuclear hot seat interview. What can you tell us about this restart and the leak and the follow-up? The fan had been used before. It was shut down for maintenance while other fans are used. So just to clarify, these are the fans that pull the air from the underground up to the surface and through the filters on the surface before the air is released into the environment. So the goal here is to capture as much of the contaminants as possible in the filters on the surface so it's not released into the general environment. Obviously, in any situation, a little bit can get through the filters, and the concern was because this particular fan had not run for a while, when it came online, it would tend to move around contamination that was in the underground that had not gotten to the surface or hadn't been released into the environment yet. And and that's what happened. What we didn't know is what the amounts would be when the fan came online. It was long planned to have this fan come back on and people other than just me understood that there could be higher levels of contamination coming up because of this, and therefore that's why I and other people ask that both Nuclear Waste Partnership, the DOE contractor, and the Carlsbad Environmental Monitoring and Research Center do analysis of what was coming out so we would a know what was coming out b know what the levels were and c importantly so that before the fan came online workers would be what's called sheltered in place so they wouldn't be out in the general environment in case significant amount of materials came out what the CMERC analysis showed is what came out were 0.13 becquerels of americium-241 and 0.01 becquerels of plutonium-239 and 240. 
and there was no detection of plutonium-238. This is at their on-site location. So these are extremely small amounts, and the way Russell Hardy, the director of CMERC, described them to me is these were very small amounts. He said it's about one-tenth of the americium and about one-twelfth of plutonium-239 detected right after the Valentine's Day release. So in context, he was saying these were small amounts and only a tenth or less the amounts that came out at the time of the radiation release. And I agree with his analysis, but as I also responded to him, well, another way of looking at it is what came out as a result of the turning the fan on in October were the highest levels that had been detected at these monitoring sites since February 18th. So they were low amounts, but they were higher than what had been being detected for the previous eight months. Thank you for having made that point to him, because low levels of release of these radionuclides is not the same as no release of radionuclides. And, of course, while it may not be a public health, quote, unquote, problem, meaning the vast number of people, it will be very important if anybody manages to ingest or inhale even an atom of this material and it gets inside their bodies. And this is, of course, the concern. And the people who were closest to these radionuclides, the americium and plutonium, when it came out, were, of course, the workers at the site, which is why the concern was in advance that there not be workers outside when this was happening because they could be exposed. We were told, and as far as I know, it's true, that the workers were kept inside, and so they presumably didn't get exposure at the time. Of course, the other thing that's true is these radionuclides, americium-241 and plutonium-239 and 240, are very long-lived. So the fact that you don't breathe them in at one time and then they're in the environment doesn't mean at some point down the line as the wind blows or the particles are moved around, they can't expose people in the future, which is, of course, why. That's the the basic premise of WIP, you put these dangerous radionuclides deep underground so they can't get out into the environment. So the fact that they did on February 14th and 15th and subsequently and then did again in October shows that the site has fundamentally failed in, in very specific ways. Things happened that were never supposed to happen, and that's still the case. It seems that on the town hall meeting of November 26th, there was a lot of care taken to minimize the potential impact of this latest release. Cammie Reynolds from the WIP Operator Nuclear Waste Partnership said that the company was very pleased with the results and minimized the impact of this new release by saying it was less than we actually anticipated, much less than any person would ever be impacted from. Well, this is unfortunately a continuing of what Nuclear Waste Partnership and DOE people have said all along. What they should be telling us are what the expected levels are, and they should tell us in advance of any of these kinds of things, and then tell us what the actual values are when something happens. They actually should be, and I made this point when I was in 
DOE headquarters last week, they should be releasing on an ongoing basis the levels of contamination they're finding in the underground. They're doing sampling. They're doing what they call rollback in the underground all the time. And and there, again, they want to say, well, the levels we're finding are below expectations. Well, when they don't tell us what the expected values are or what the actual values are, their statements are just meaningless. So what I've argued for and have been saying this for months, they need to actually put out the data. Uh, And that's why I wanted the data for what actually happened in October when the fan was turned on. And that's why I want the data of what's going on in the underground. I don't want their conclusory statements about expected or not because that's meaningless without having a context. There has been a shocking lack of understanding or at least misdirection of attention about the difference between external and internal contamination by radioactive particles. If it's external, it can be washed off, scrubbed, you can silk wood it off. But internally, if it's inhaled or ingested, it's up close and personal with your internal organs, and it will cause damage to the body. Now, there are 22 confirmed cases of internal contamination from the workers. Has there been any update, either through the company or through their union, as to what their condition is and how they are being treated? There hasn't been any public announcement of that beyond what DOE said months ago and Nuclear Waste Partnership said months ago, which is they had concluded that each of these uh, 22 workers were exposed to less than 10 millirems of internal contamination, and therefore they considered that to be insignificant. They weren't doing any further bioassay and sampling of those workers to see what their continuing levels of internal contamination were. None of those workers were provided with health insurance that allows them to go to get a second opinion uh, from qualified medical doctors, et cetera. So as far as the OE is concerned, they are not encouraging or prescribing any further treatment or analysis of those workers. I disagree with that. I hope that some or all of those workers have actually gotten actual medical opinion and examination, but I do not know whether that's true or not. Uh, I do know that if they've done that, they've had to do that on their own as opposed to being covered by their health insurance programs or other kinds of things. More to the point, or additional to the point, is I have asked that the workers who are going underground now, those that are in protective equipment and those that are not, should also be sampled to determine whether they actually are having any internal contamination from being underground. And I've requested that that be done. I haven't been told for sure one way or another, but I am therefore pretty confident that there's no bioassay analysis going on of the workers who are going underground, which I find that to be uh, inappropriate too because, again, without that kind of analysis, there's not really any certainty about whether additional workers are now being exposed and there are workers going underground essentially every day. And last week, DOE announced that they're tripling the number of workers that can be underground at any time up to 75. So again, the potential for additional contamination exists 
And just as I wasn't satisfied with how the 22 workers were tested and informed and subsequent testing back in February and March, I'm not satisfied with what's going on now in September and October and November as workers go underground. Have you had the opportunity to discuss this with union leadership to see if they're interested in bringing more pressure on DOE, WIP, Nuclear Waste Partnership, whoever they can to make certain the workers are protected? I have not talked to union uh, leadership. I know other people who have had some discussions. I was told as recently as last week that there has been and continues to be concern from some of the unions. As I say, the unions haven't been making public statements uh, as a general matter, so they've chosen and the unionized workers have chosen to take care of these things privately. Some of the workers are also not unionized, so they're also in a different situation. On Sunday, November 15, Patrick Malone, a reporter with the Santa Fe New Mexican, wrote an extensive investigative piece on the errors that took place at Los Alamos National Laboratory regarding the packaging of the waste in the container that actually leaked, exploded, whatever we want to call it, as well as ongoing faulty communications with WIP. It's pretty damning of Los Alamos' handling of both the materials and the information flow after the leak. What's your awareness of this article, and how has it been received? Well, I'm quite aware of the article. To the credit of the reporter and the newspaper, they've also put 2,852 pages of documents that they received that are the basis for this story online, so they are available to me and other people to look at as well. The article is important. Additional articles uh, and follow-up will be important. Information in those documents is important. It's also important to note that the documents are mostly from the May 2014 timeframe and some in June. So they're not the most up-to-date in terms of what's happened subsequently. And again, this is just another example of the Department of Energy and Nuclear Waste Partnership and Los Alamos National Lab and their contractor lands making the kind of information available to the public that they should be making available. It's an important article. I thank the reporter and the newspaper for doing it. I expect they're going to be doing some additional coverage because they certainly haven't exhausted uh, all the information in the documents that they finally were able to uh, receive as a result of a Freedom of Information request. So there is a lot more to the story. Bottom line, though, as you summarized, in May, some Los Alamos scientists were saying they were concerned that there could be additional reactions, chemical reactions, explosions in the underground, and that information did not get conveyed to officials at WIP for about a week. The deputy manager of the WIP site then in an email said he was appalled that they didn't get this information. As a result of getting the information, the planned entry on May 28th into the underground didn't actually occur. It occurred two days later on May 30th. 
but it raises a number of questions. One, the communications issue, which presumably has gotten fixed now, although this was in May that this happened, but there's continuing work going on in a lot of places, so the communication's important. The fact that there was concern in May about the possibility of additional underground energetic chemical reactions, to use DOE speak, is a concern, and if there was a concern in May, there could also still be a concern in November about such a reaction happening when we still don't know what caused the February reaction to happen. So, again, WIP, DOE, Los Alamos, the contractors should be much more forthcoming with the public and the workers in terms of why either the analysis in May was wrong and the subsequent analysis that shows that or what their current analysis is about the potential for some kind of event and it either a heat event, fire, or a chemical reaction event when you have workers underground would be far more serious than what happened in May, when, or I'm sorry, in February, when there were no workers underground. So these are very continuing real problems that should get more of a detailed technical response from Los Alamos and WIP and DOE than we've so far seen. They are blaming the switch from inorganic to organic kitty litter to be mixed in to neutralize the pH of the drum solely on a typo. How likely do you think that someone leaving out two letters from inorganic to organic would be completely responsible for the switch in the material with no checks going on as to whether this was an appropriate change or not? It's still not clear why the switch was made. We know better from records at the time when the switch was made. We still don't know why. There are lots of different possible reasons. There is one document, at least, in these almost 3,000 pages of documents that opines that that could be a reason. There are also other documents that opine other reasons. So the answer is we don't know. And the reason I believe that that got put in the article is to try to help get somebody, uh, if somebody knows why the switch was made, to actually publicly say why it was done, etc. This is part of the continuing saga. The major bottom lines for me is that we still don't know what caused what happened on Valentine's Day. We therefore don't know that it can't happen again. We still don't know what amount of radioactivity was released. We still don't know whether it's in fact ever going to be safe to reopen this facility and and operate it and put more waste in. Those are the major questions that I think need answers to. There are obviously many other questions that it would be nice to know the answers to, and it's concerning that we're now more than nine months after the event happened, and these major fundamental questions are not answered, nor are some of these other questions that people legitimately want to know what happened, and we don't. So this is a continuing problem, and DOE and Nuclear Waste Partnership sort of downplaying on a constant basis the situation and that there aren't problems, et cetera, et cetera, is not really appropriate. 
Don Hancock was in Washington, D.C. last week for both the Sierra Club National Nuclear Summit and also some private meetings at the Department of Energy. Here's what he asked of the DOE. One of the things I've mentioned on this interview about making the underground contamination data available on a regular basis. Another thing that I've been talking to headquarters about and the WIP site manager about for a long time is to have a public technical discussion, extended discussion about the recovery plan. In other words, these issues going forward about the contamination how to decontaminate it or not, how can you operate this facility in a contaminated mode, as they're proposing to do, and a number of other questions. And the end result of this is I've made requests. The requests have been heard. I was told that they would follow up, but the proof, of course, is in what actually happens. I mean, my bottom line is I want to have more independent technical analysis of what has happened, what is going on, and what will happen in the future. And I want a lot more public information and public involvement as well. So those will continue to be major things that I'm pushing for until the performance gets better, which unfortunately it's not at this point. So that's part of the reason to go to headquarters. And part of what I said to her is, some of these memos also confirm. In some cases, Los Alamos or WIP people are making decisions, doing things, deciding what can be said and what shouldn't be said publicly. And in some cases, it's headquarters in Washington that's making these decisions. And I, again, think there needs to be a lot more transparency about who's calling which shots so people know. But I know that I need to talk to WIP officials in Carlsbad, and I also need to talk to DOE officials in Washington to make sure some of the message that I have is getting through because there are multiple people involved. And, of course, I also talk to people at Los Alamos. So this is an ongoing problem, and as I say, it's not getting better. The reason to go to Washington is to try to continue to advocate for some of these kinds of improvements in terms of technical analysis and public information. Anything you would like to add at this time? In summary, these are continuing problems. We still have continuing problems at WIP and what's going to happen with going forward. So. I appreciate your interest, and I encourage people to continue to pay attention because the only way things may get better and we may get more information about what's going on is if people show that they're interested and stay involved and people like you and newspaper folks at the Santa Fe, New Mexican, and other places keep digging into the story because otherwise what DOE and its contractors would do would not be the best thing. That was Don Hancock, the Executive Director of Southwest Information and Resource Center. Another recent nuclear accident in the U.S. was at the Honeywell Uranium Processing Facility in Metropolis, not Superman's hometown, but a small town in southern Illinois, just across the Ohio River from Paducah, Kentucky. To learn more about the latest at the Honeywell site, I spoke with Gail Snyder. She serves as board president of the Chicago-based Nuclear Energy Information Service, or NEIS, a nonprofit organization formed in 1981 that is committed to educating the public and legislators about nuclear energy and the renewable energy alternatives to nuclear energy. Gail Snyder, 
Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the uranium hexafluoride leak that took place on October 26th at the Honeywell Uranium Processing Facility in Metropolis, Illinois, which is just across the Ohio River from Paducah, Kentucky. What is processed at the Honeywell facility, and how does it relate to the nuclear energy industry? So often our concerns about the dangers of nuclear energy are dominated by discussions about what we call the middle and the back end of the nuclear fuel cycle, which includes reactors, spent fuel pools, nuclear waste, and decommissioning. The public is really unaware of what we all call the front end of the nuclear fuel cycle, which involves mining, milling, and enrichment of uranium. In Illinois, we have facilities for almost all stages of the nuclear fuel cycle, and at the front end, we have the Honeywell facility in Metropolis, Illinois, performing one of the processes involved in enriching uranium to make the fuel used in nuclear reactors. We have the most operating commercial nuclear reactors and stored fuel from reactors of any state in the nation, and we have ongoing decommissioning of the Zion Nuclear Facility on Lake Michigan shoreline, about 40 miles from downtown Chicago. So one important lesson that we try to really educate people about, and especially legislators, is that in supporting nuclear energy, you end up including and supporting the entire nuclear fuel cycle, which is the beginning, middle, and end, and all the potential hazards that happen along the way. And the hazard that happened most recently in Illinois is that the facility in downstate Illinois, the Honeywell facility, is part of the front end of the nuclear fuel cycle. And Honeywell takes uranium that's been mined and then milled into a material called yellow cake, which is done at a facility, and it converts it through a chemical process using fluorine to form what's called uranium hexafluoride gas. It's radioactive, and it's a toxic chemical as well. So it's really dangerous stuff. The purpose of the conversion process is to remove the impurities and to increase the concentration of the uranium-235. Uranium-235 needs to be at a certain concentration so that it can create a self-sustaining nuclear fission reaction that occurs in the nuclear reactor. And the gas produced is then converted into a liquid. Once they create this uranium hexafluoride gas, they convert it to a liquid, then they cool it down into a solid, and then they ship it off to a uranium enrichment facility where it's turned into the actual nuclear fuel pellets that they use in nuclear reactors. Honeywell is authorized to process about 150 million pounds of yellow cake into uranium hexafluoride. Is that in a yearly basis, or is that total? I believe that's annually. Wow. Now, Honeywell initially reported to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that they had what was called a plant emergency. What actually happened, and how accurate was their assessment of the problem, at least initially? The NRC, which is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, regulates all uranium processing facilities. So Honeywell reported to the NRC that they had a leak of uranium hexafluoride and falsely reported that it was contained within a building. The only way we or possibly even the NRC discovered that the leak went outside the building is from union employees who've been locked out by Honeywell and were picketing outside the facility who took video of the plume coming out of the top of the building. The plume came out for about five or six minutes before Honeywell turned on the suppression system to try and contain it. 
then after that, it took 18 days for Honeywell to admit that they should have classified the emergency as what's called an alert. And they should have done that to the NRC, and they needed to correct their reporting. So they did that about 18 days after the initial incident. The two options available in the NRC emergency classification system for this type of facility is an alert or a site area emergency. They originally reported it as a plant emergency, which is not an official classification in the NRC system at all. And under emergency classification, Honeywell originally just checked the box, not applicable. So really just not reporting this initially started this off in a bad way. The significance is that the only way for emergency responders in the public sector to be alerted that they may need to help in an emergency or prepare, that they may have to notify the public to shelter in place or to evacuate, is to be notified by Honeywell. The whole community is dependent on Honeywell to warn them of an emergency as well as tell the emergency responders if people should shelter in place or evacuate. You know, this just demonstrates how weak the NRC can be as a regulator of a nuclear facility when everyone's relying on just Honeywell. There are not, you know, emergency systems that are operated by other agencies outside of Honeywell that can alert the public. So if Honeywell wants to take a risk and not report how significant an emergency is until the last moment in hopes that they will maybe not have to alert the public or the NRC, or if Honeywell makes a mistake in assessing their own accidents, as appears to be the case this time around, emergency responders could be unprepared or delayed in responding to the public, and the public could be exposed to uranium hexafluoride and maybe even hydrogen fluoride. We've been covering this in stages on nuclear hot seat as further information has come out, and it seems that Honeywell went, it didn't get out of the building. Well, it got out of the building, but it didn't get out of the facility, like it stopped at the fence line or something. What do we know about the size of the release and the dangers that were faced by the local community? In the final analysis, which includes Honeywell's own monitoring systems of uranium hexafluoride as well as hydrogen fluoride. They're separate monitors. They also do an analysis, a computerized plume analysis. Based on their data, and the NRC agrees with them, they did not release either of those materials off-site, although according to someone in the union, there is not a hydrogen fluoride monitor on the west side of the property. And that was somewhat confirmed to me by someone at the NRC that because there aren't any houses on the west side, they probably don't have a hydrogen fluoride monitor on the west side of the property. So we don't really know if hydrogen fluoride went past the boundary line of their property on that side. But the NRC believes that based on the modeling that it did not. The Illinois Emergency Management Agency is in charge of monitoring outside the boundary fence line with uranium hexafluoride monitors. And they're really not monitoring that particularly, they're just monitoring radiation, the radioactive component of uranium hexafluoride. And they did not detect anything significant beyond what they normally detect. They monitor those and collect data every week. Uh, so they didn't see any significant increases. But there is no government agency that monitors hydrogen fluoride that I can tell so far based on the agencies that I've spoken with, and I haven't seen it reported anywhere else. There is no one that is monitoring hydrogen fluoride outside the property line. 
so that's a concern is that if it goes beyond the property line and the company reports that it didn't, who would be there to confirm that it didn't or, or it did? You said that locked out union employees filmed the release of a plume. Why are they locked out? And if they're outside, who's running the facility? Yeah. Um, well, Honeywell and the union workers are in a labor dispute. And in August, Honeywell locked out about 135 union workers, who I believe make up around half of the employees that operate the facility, and the other half are non-union employees. The union's claiming that the lockout is illegal and in violation of the National Labor Relations Act. And Honeywell brought in contract workers to replace the union workers that they locked out. The locked out union workers claim the facilities not being operated as safely with contract workers because they claim they're not well trained and do not have the value of the job experience that the union workers do. And the NRC is allowing the facility to operate with the contract workers. I cannot tell you if the facility would be safer with the union employees on the job or if the facility is less safe with the contract workers. The facility performs a dangerous process in the uranium fuel cycle and accidents and mistakes can happen with anyone working there and mechanical failures. Ultimately, the NRC and the company must ensure that the facility is run safely and that the emergencies are accurately responded to. One would only hope. What kind of follow-up to the accident is going on? Is the plant back in operation? Is there additional monitoring going on? Is there any kind of testing? The facility is back up and running. What happened was Honeywell submitted a plan to the NRC. What they said happened was that they had an emergency plan and that that emergency plan called for someone to make an observation when the emergency was going on. Their official reason is that they didn't realize why they needed to classify the situation as an alert emergency because they didn't realize they were releasing a plume of hydrogen fluoride out of the top of the building. So Honeywell's emergency plan calls for someone to be stationed to observe the emergency, but the person was stationed in a location where they couldn't see the release. This is an emergency response. <laughs> this is an emergency. I know. I know. There's a reason why we're using yeah. nuts in relation with the nuclear industry. Go ahead. This is an emergency response plan that the NRC approves. So who's to blame, Honeywell or the NRC or both? Unlike nuclear power facilities, this facility does not produce highly enriched uranium. So facilities that produce highly enriched uranium or nuclear power plants have a resident inspector from the NRC permanently stationed on site, and this facility does not. Now, it would make sense to have someone there to better assess in real time what's happening during an emergency. Now Honeywell has changed their emergency plan. The NRC has observed a drill and approved the plan, and the company restarted operation the same day that they officially filed the correct alert classification, which was on November 13th. So it sounds like they ducked any kind of regulatory bullet on this. Well, I don't know that they did because I think uh, the NRC can come back to them, although they don't often penalize these corporations um, very significantly for what they do. But what has happened in the past is the Illinois Attorney General has fined Honeywell $90,000 for three previous releases of hydrogen fluoride since 2008. So that could possibly happen again that they didn't follow procedure and maybe the state's attorney general will come after them.
Back in 2003, there was a uranium hexafluoride leak, and a news station, KSDK.com, reported that four residents of Metropolis, including two children who live near the Honeywell plant, were evacuated after a valve leak. Three of the four people taken to Massac Memorial Hospital with coughing problems have been released. A hospital official said one of them, a child, will be kept overnight for observation. A Honeywell spokesperson said a valve began leaking and workers then patched the leak. And then to be safe, officials evacuated 25 people from an area and ordered 75 others to stay indoors, which is sheltering in place. So that's the kind of scenario that won back in 2003 that can easily happen when something gets over the fence line. How has the local community, both in Metropolis and across the river in Paducah, as well as the media, been responding to the accident? The union is pretty upset because a lot of them feel that they would have handled the situation better through their experience, that they're more prepared. I believe a number of them live in the community, so they feel that they're at risk. The media... Originally, when the first press release came out, they just immediately reported whatever the company said. And the company was saying right from the beginning, there wasn't a, you know, a major emergency, there wasn't a release, there was nothing to worry about, this kind of same old story that comes out. Then we come to find out that it was more significant and they, they misclassified the emergency. The company was very dismissive of the union reporting that there was a plume coming out of the building. Had the union employees not been there filming it, they may have gotten away with no one knowing what had happened there. And the media was not jumping on that. They were not getting on that until there was more coverage, there was more calls being made, there was a press release issued by us, and then it seemed like it started to get some more coverage. What has NEIS been doing in connection with this event? We've been making a lot of phone calls. One of the problems with a situation like this is there are so many state agencies with overlapping jurisdiction. It's a little difficult to track down who's in charge of what and where the information is that you need to get. As many of your listeners know who've been on the NRC website, it's not always easy to find the information. So we've been talking to the NRC. We've been talking to the Illinois Emergency Management Agency, as well as emergency management people down in that community, the emergency responder for Metropolis, the county emergency, spoken with the hospital, although they won't release information on if anyone was seen regarding this, although they did have an incident, pretty soon, actually two incidents after this where two workers were contaminated at separate incidences. I don't know if that was in relationship to cleanup of this event, it doesn't say on the reports. We've been tracking it. I think what we would like to do now is to pursue the possibility of hydrogen fluoride monitoring outside the boundary and find out why that doesn't occur and if it can occur, how that would happen and who would be in charge of that. I believe it would be the EPA. Also, I think we as well as other people who are near facilities that process uranium that is not enriched uranium, need to start thinking about if there should be an NRC resident inspector on site during the operation of these facilities. Anything happens further in connection with this case, please let us know here at Nuclear Hot Seat so we can pass information on to the listeners. We will, Levy, and we also want to let people know who live in that area if they would like to have their 
soil tested for radiation, they can give us a call or send us an email and we can get you some information on how you can get that done. It would be probably a good thing for people to do to kind of know where they are right now and possibly if there was another release ever, they could compare samples. We do not want them to send samples to us, so if they'd like to contact us, our website is www.neis.org. Our email is neis at neis.org. And they can contact us and we'll give them that information. Also, if anyone down in the area of the Honeywell facility is interested in contacting NEIS and being a source person for us down there, please contact us as well. That was Gail Snyder of Nuclear Energy Information Service based in Chicago. We'll have an embed of the video of the Honeywell release plume as filmed by a union worker up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under this episode, number 179. John Stewart, I would be really thankful if you would just reach out and say, yes, you're right, I do need a nuclear pundit, and you are it. At least get me in to give a consciousness raising to your writers so that they can be self-supporting through their own contributions. Come on, John. Nuclear's not going away anytime soon. Actually, it's not going away ever. So let's get with the program and do some real reporting. From a comic perspective, of course. Here's today's final thought. I am now convinced that the nuclear industry is intentionally consciously, and maliciously at war against the perception of radiation, what it does to the human body, how it impacts our health, and how dangerous it is. The legislation that passed the House by voice vote today, the heinous Unskir report saying that Fukushima's radiation was no big deal, the war that Japan is fighting against its own people to keep them from the truth about radiation. All of this is an end run around all of our true information dating back as much as 70 years about what radiation is and what it does. Here in the U.S., specifically around BEER-7, which stands for the Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation. This report, which originated in 1990 and was updated in both 2005 and 2006, states that there is no dose of radiation below which it is safe to be exposed, that radiation is always considered harmful, the doses are cumulative, and so-called low-level radiation exposure accumulates to become just as deadly as a single larger dose. The rush to discount beer 7, take it down, and totally distort our understanding of radiation's dangers is being timed to put in place so that by the time the USS Reagan Tomodachi sailors get their day in court, our understanding of radiation will be warped and distorted into the quote-unquote accepted knowledge that radiation could not possibly been the cause of all of these bizarre illnesses, cancers, and deaths among the military personnel who were exposed to the catastrophic doses of Fukushima as a result of their participation in Operation Tomodachi. Just like in Japan, we're all being encouraged to adopt a don't worry, be happy attitude, with my apologies to Bobby McFerrin, 
because a smile is the best protection against radiation. And if you get sick, it's because you were worried about it. Oh, give it a rest. But they won't, because a lot is at stake, as in a lot of money. Five multi-billion dollar corporations are fighting to save their profits by putting down desperately ill sailors, their families, and their children's future by demolishing the facts about radiation's devastating impact on human health that's been accepted and acknowledged for over 60 years. The nuclear industry has lined up its big bazookas, so-called scientists, researchers, PR agencies, and paid trolls, the World Health Organization's UNSCIR, pro-nuclear whores of all colors, stripes, and configurations, suited up with a multi-million dollar war chest and bought and paid for politicians in their pockets. All of this is arrayed to take down our arguments regarding radiation damage to the human body before we can pose them in a court of law. With that level of firepower, the nukers assume victory. To them, it's a foregone conclusion. After all, what do we have on our side? Just the truth. Only the truth. That's why we are going to win. David and Goliath? A gaggle of Goliaths? Forget about it! And just remember... David won. So if you're planning to give a donation this week, give it to the Sailors Fund to cover their lawsuit charges against TEPCO and all the others. You can do that at FukushimaRadiationVictims.net. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 25th, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, the Tennessee Valley Authority, WCYB, Hydro World, Take-Two Show, Santa Rosa Press Democrat, Radio Ecoshock, King 5 News, and Susanna Frame, nuclearnews.net, Reuters, AP, ABC Australia, Fox News, Japan Times, Asahi Shimbun, Manichi Daily News, NHK, SafeEnergy.org, NuclearExhaust.wordpress.com, TheGuardian.com.uk, the soul dead horses asses at World Nuclear News who think no one they love will ever get cancer caused by radiation, and they're wrong, and the fabulous Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, to which you are all invited. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV and is also available on AirProgressive.com. Our archive is on iTunes. You can subscribe under podcasts to get a new show every week. Or just check us out on the website, nuclearhotseat.com. The website looks a little bit funky just now, but that's because I hit an ill-advised update button on the theme. We should be back to what passes for normal next week. And our YouTube channel carries the show, courtesy the unflagging support of Joni Ray. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Copyright 2014, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed for not-for-profit groups, blogs, and websites. You have my permission to reuse, granted as long as proper attribution is provided, meaning my name and the website. If you're for-profit, hey, I'm reasonable. Let's have a conversation. 
This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that Sister Megan Rice is still in jail for her peaceful protest of nuclear weapons. And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. <laughs> 